Join me in standing for the reading of God's Word and turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, it is always useful to have one open in front of you as we study God's Word together so you can grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you and you'll find this morning's text on page 885. It was on November 26th, 2017, some 17 months and 10 days ago, that we began our sermon series through Luke's Gospel. And we come to the end. We come one last time to Luke's Gospel today. So kids, that means 525 days ago we began our study. And we're finishing today as we look at verse 36 through 53 of Luke chapter 24. And I trust for those of you that have been with us from the beginning, for those of you that have been with us for many months, or maybe just a few weeks, that Luke has blessed your heart as he has helped you to stop and sit and stare at the Savior's glory. And so we do that one last time together this morning. So let me read the passage for us and then pray for our time, and then we will begin our study together. So let us hear now as Christ Jesus again speaks to us through His Word. As they were talking about these things, Jesus Himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and they took it and ate it before them. And he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of My Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then He led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up His hands, He blessed them. And while He blessed them, He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped Him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now, Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's Word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let's bow in prayer together once more. Father, we do thank You that Jesus Christ is our Lord, that He is our King, that He is our Prophet, that He is our Priest. Uh, We thank You for the message of Luke that helps us have certainty concerning the truth about our Lord and Savior. So give us certainty and confidence. Give us conviction and power, we pray, as we study this text. As we look at this Gospel one last time, open our eyes that we might see Christ, and in looking upon Him that we might live. So help us to hear with earnestness and eagerness. Help me to preach with clarity and courage what You say I must. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
It was some decades ago that a student came into a Christian bookstore and asked the manager, give me your best defense of Christianity. The store manager knew exactly the book that this student was going to need, and so he rushed to the shelves and grabbed the book off the shelf and gave it to him. And what he gave him was a book that was originally published in 1972 by Campus Crusade for Christ. It's a book that has since sold well north of one million copies, no small feat for an evangelical Christian book, and been published into 44 different languages. And with his book in hand, the student began to walk out of the store, and he shouted over his shoulder, and just so you know, I'm a doctoral student writing a dissertation that's going to destroy Christianity. Off he goes. Time goes by, six weeks in fact, and the next time we hear from him in church history, he's being baptized into the Christian faith by that very store manager, all because he read this book, which was written by a young apologist named Josh McDowell, and the book was titled, maybe you have it at home, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And that well could be the subtitle of Luke's gospel. He's presenting to us in our church context, for almost 18 months, evidence that demands a verdict. You may remember all the way back to that very first sermon. Luke tells us he has one person in mind when he's writing this gospel, at least immediately and initially, this young man named Theophilus. And he says, I put together this orderly account for you, Theophilus, so you might have certainty concerning the things that you have heard about Jesus Christ. I want you to know about his teaching. I want you to know about his ministry. I want you to know about his story. I want you to know about the evidence that demands a verdict from your heart. And so we come one last time to Luke's gospel to find Luke yet again providing us with proof, providing us with instruction, providing us with truth that's meant to give us confidence and assurance that Jesus is who he really says he is, namely that he has risen from the grave. That's what our text means to prove to us today. So if you weren't with us last week, uh, we were in verse 13 through 35 of Luke 24. It was Easter afternoon. Jesus mysteriously showed up to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And we know that he gave them this seven-mile seminary course on how to interpret the Old Testament in light of what he has done that he is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament's expectation of salvation. If you glance up to verse 32, these two disciples, after Jesus departed from them, and they realized who it was, they said, didn't our hearts burn within us as he opened to us the Scriptures? Some of you might have had similar experiences. You know that truth in the mind tends to bring heat in the heart. And Jesus is going to do the almost exact same thing with a bigger group of disciples in our text today. And as we read the passage just a few minutes ago, maybe you notice that it's basically got two main parts. you got Jesus appearing to his disciples, and at the end, Jesus ascending from his disciples. And there is, in ways that we want to concentrate and focus on this morning, a dominant theme, a dominant note, if you will, within the tone of the disciples' response to Jesus in both parts. Look at verse 41. Jesus appeared to them, and they're disbelieving for joy. Then if you move ahead to after his ascension in verse 52, they return to Jerusalem with great joy. And so the simple point that Luke is meaning to show us is not just that Jesus indeed rose from the grave and ascended to the Father's right hand, 
but he also is the source of all Christian joy. That's the point of this passage. Jesus has risen and ascended to the Father's hand and is himself the source of all joy in the Christian experience. And so kids, what you want to pay attention to as we're reading this passage, in part, is again the truth that the Christian life is supposed to be one about increasing joy in Jesus. Maybe you live in a home that joy in Jesus isn't necessarily the dominant theme of your household. Or maybe you're surrounded by Christian community that tends to feel like complaining, criticism, grumbling and arguing, discontentment and doubting is to be more of the norm of the Christian experience. But maybe this text will challenge you a little bit to recognize that to experience, to know, to love, to obey Jesus Christ is to continually be walking in a growing experience of joy in that very Savior. And so we're just going to walk through the text under two parts. And we need to know where we left off last week because there's an immediate segue between verse 35 and 36. If you look at verse 35... The disciples that Jesus had spoken to on the road to Emmaus have returned and they're meeting with a bunch of other disciples and they're telling them what happened on the road, that they had actually experienced the risen Christ. So this room is full, it's packed with this emotional energy. Now we see in verse 36 and following, first, joy at Christ's appearance. Look at verse 36. Luke says, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. So make sure you try to put yourself and grapple with the emotional experience of the disciples in this text. Just three days before, many of them, if not all of them, had seen Jesus crucified on a hill called Calvary. A night passes. A whole nother day passes. Then a whole nother night. And then a whole nother morning and doom and gloom seems to be breaking over the horizon of their souls. But sometime around that Easter morning, especially into the afternoon, the, these reports started coming in. The tomb is empty. He has risen. He's not there. And now they look what? And suddenly, he's here. Now what's he going to say to them first of all? Notice verse 36. He says, peace to you. So we want to make sure that in this one last appearance of Jesus Christ to his disciples in Luke's gospel, we get the full significance of his teaching, of his instruction to them. So I just want to summarize what we find in this first part under five simple truths, five simple words, if you will. First, we see Christ's benediction, peace to you. It's an ordinary Jewish greeting at the time. Jews, these disciples, would have heard that over and over, oftentimes multiple times a day. But it actually is an appropriate bookend to Luke's gospel, because remember all the way back to chapter 2, the shepherds are sleeping on the night when Jesus was born. They break the night sky with Shekinah glory, and then the shepherds are freaked out about it. But what does the chief angel say? Peace on earth. And now at the very end, the Savior has risen and says, peace to you, but The peace doesn't remove their panic. Because look at verse 37. They were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Now, it wasn't too many weeks ago that one of my kids came to me and asked me, I think it was over breakfast in the morning, Daddy, do you believe in ghosts? Are ghosts really real? And some of you parents have had the same question asked to you. Some of you kids have asked the very same question. 
And you need to know in the worldview of the disciples in the first century, if you went to all of them on this Easter evening and said, hey, do you believe in ghosts? All of them immediately would say, absolutely. Who doesn't? They think they see a ghost when Jesus has showed up. It's the ghost of Jesus past. It's a spirit they think that has showed up. And so Jesus moves from benediction to give them confirmation. And he starts with a question. Look at verse 37. I'm sorry, verse 38. Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? Don't you know that this can be an ordinary experience for Christians? You can be close to Christ and yet feel nothing but trouble in your heart. You can be near the Lord Jesus, and it's as though your soul and mind is panicking before Him, that His peace, that His presence isn't enough to just calm your heart, to alleviate your fears. And if that's happened to you before, you know what's going on with the disciples right here. And even this word doubts in verse 38, more originally in the Greek, it meant calculations, self-reason that often brings confusion. So, The disciples are looking at Jesus in front of them and calculating inside their mind. Well, he looks real, but we saw him die a few days ago. Well, they did tell us that he rose again this morning, but I don't know. I mean, I've seen a ghost before. Didn't I tell Joe about that last week? Calculations within their mind. Is he really risen? So in the midst of all their self-calculations, Jesus gives them confirmation. Just scan your eyes through verse 39 and 40. He says, touch and see. Ghosts don't have flesh and bones like me. Do you see my feet? Nails pierced through these feet. Do you see my hands? Nails pierced through these hands. And I think it's instructive, isn't it? Maybe even for us as a church. We have doubting disciples here. And what does Jesus do with them? He doesn't correct them. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't admonish them. He doesn't discipline them. He says, come, see. And I wonder if you cultivate that kind of atmosphere maybe in your home, if we as a church are dealing with doubters mercifully, people in fear gently. Jesus has already told us in this gospel that he takes bruised reeds and he never breaks them, flickering flames and he never quenches them. Come and see. So what's their response to all of this evidence in verse 41? And while they still disbelieved for joy, they were marveling. It's, it's a clunky phrase in the ESV, I think, disbelieved for joy. If you have a different translation, it may say something like, they were too joyful to believe what they had seen. Students, it's as though they're seeing something, and it's just too good to be true. That's their mentality in this moment. And to make sure he seals for their minds the certainty that he has, in fact, risen, look what he asks in verse 41 at the end. Have you anything to eat? So, kids, why does Jesus want something to eat? Maybe it's because he's been in the grave for three days and he's hungry. It's not that. Nor is it because he gets broiled fish, something of a sanctified diet that we're meant to follow. What is he trying to tell us and tell them? The risen Christ is real and recognizable. Ghosts don't eat. Give me something to eat. His benediction leads to confirmation. And now... We're going to hear Christ's illumination. Over the course of a few years, I've, the last few years, I've subscribed on and off to this company called The Great Courses. I take all of these college subjects, really across the board, philosophy, history, art, literature, math, you name it, 
and they get the best professors, the most engaging lecturers on that subject, and then they put the information, the course online, and of course you pay money to listen to it. And what we're going to get now is the same thing the two disciples on the road to Emmaus got last week. As the greatest teacher in human history, I was going to give the greatest course on biblical theology. For look at what he says in verse 44 through 46. Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. You know, every so often I'll get a text message throughout the week from seminary students. They were saying, man, you should have heard what the professor said today in this class. Or I wish you could listen to the recording of this lecture because it's an amazing truth that he was bringing to our minds. And students, if you've had something of that experience maybe before, or you can remember something of that illuminating experience with truth, you understand what the disciples are going through in this moment. Because Jesus is once again here for one last time telling his disciples, look at the Old Testament. Look at the law. Look at the prophets. Even look at the Psalms and see how they testify about me. And maybe you've had that happen to you. You've walked through the Old Testament for many days, maybe even many years in your Christian experience, and then you realize how it all fits together in Jesus Christ and what used to be something like dim doctrine now becomes like radiant truth in the light of who he is and what he has done. And it's also, I think, important for us to note from these three verses, as members of a church that seeks to proclaim Jesus Christ, is that we have a historical faith. Prophecies were made, predictions were made, and events happened that fulfilled all of the Old Testament's expectation of the Redeemer that was going to come. It's why an old New Testament professor sometime in the 1920s, a guy named J. Gresham Machen said, Christianity is a historical phenomenon. It's not just a man-made myth, a legend, a whim of fancy. It is based on actual events that have happened in history. So maybe you're in here this morning and are skeptical about the claims of Christ. My encouragement to you is to do what these initial disciples were doing, examining the evidence. Sometimes skeptics will say, well, you know, uh, the original disciples, they're just hallucinating when they, when they see Jesus. Not recognizing the actual New Testament says they thought they were hallucinating. Yet in reality, they were seeing the physically resurrected Jesus Christ in front of them, instructing them in the truth. And his illumination now gets a commission. Look at verse 47. Jesus says, Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in my name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. It's Luke's account of what's more famous in Matthew, what we often call as Christians, the, the great commission. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So kids, what's repentance? I've seen it over and over in Luke's Gospel. This is a central feature of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. To repent of our sins and preach repentance and call people to repentance. Well, it does mean, doesn't it? Just simply a change of mind that leads to a change of heart. It means turning away from sin and turning to the Savior. And we want to recognize that the forgiveness of sin that Jesus offers us, the total washing away of our shame, the removal of our guilt, the bearing in Himself, the iniquity that we have committed. All of that is offered to you freely 
in Jesus Christ when you repent of your sin. And so this is the church's commission from that point forward. Until he comes back, we go into all nations preaching this same message. Repent and be forgiven of your sin. We're like the pitcher that only knows one pitch. The guitar player that only has one chord in his arsenal. The artist that only has one technique mastered. We preach one message. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins in all nations. That's his commission. And it's a big commission, isn't it? It's a major mandate and mission. So we need strength for it, which Jesus now offers in this fifth part of this first section. Christ's provision. Look at verse 49. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Sit tight. The Holy Spirit is on the way, and he will clothe you with power. You can read the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 1, which is Luke's second volume of early church history, and you'll see this in more detail, what Jesus says in this experience of, of waiting for the Spirit to fall upon God's people. But what's striking is that if you know the language of Luke, we've heard this language, clothed with power from on high, almost exactly all the way back in Luke chapter 1. You remember this young teenage girl named Mary, the angel appears to her and says, Mary, you are highly favored of God and you are going to give birth to the Messiah. And like any normal teenage girl would do in response, she asks a question. How is that going to happen? You know what the angel said? Do you remember? You will be clothed with power from on high. The Holy Spirit will come upon you as supernaturally powered as was Christ's birth, so supernaturally powered is the church as it goes about its obedience to the great commission of preaching Jesus Christ in all nations. You know, sometimes you come across little kids and you almost want to say he or she doesn't know his or her own strength. Sometimes I want to come across churches. They don't know their own strength. They're clothed with the Spirit from on high. But maybe because they struggle to keep in step with the Spirit and exalt His power in their life, they don't know the power that is theirs for the mission entrusted to them. So these are sources for joy here at the end of Christ's ministry. His benediction, His confirmation, His illumination, His commission, and His provision for His people. There's joy at Christ's appearance. But there's also joy at Christ's ascension. If I look at verse 50 through 51, Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. So a quick geography trivia of Luke's gospel is, do you remember where Bethany is? Do you remember the last time we heard about Bethany? Well, it's this village on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives. And the last time it showed up was when Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem there at the start of Passion Week. So the same point of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem becomes the same point for his triumphal entry back into heaven. Ascension to the Father's right hand. This kind of blessing, this benediction at the end of the book as it's though he's lifting up his hand saying, Peace to you as he is rising in the clouds in glory, ascending to the Ancient of Days. I wonder how often you think about the significance, the importance of Christ's ascension. You know, we have major holidays in our culture, don't we? To remember his birth, his death, his resurrection. 
But the New Testament authors will later reflect that we have no gospel if he didn't also ascend to the Father's right hand. Even the book of Hebrews will say in chapter 4, we have this, a sure and steady anchor for our soul. So what's the this? That he has ascended beyond the heavens to the Father's right hand. John Owen, the great Prince of Puritans, said, the ascension is the foundation and hope of our faith. How often do you think about the ascension as being integral to your life in Christ? So as we do begin to close the sermon and the series, I want to help us begin to think from this passage why the ascension ought to be central. How the ascension itself even brings us joy in Jesus Christ. Because Christ's ascension, number one, brings joy for our witness. Brings joy for our witness. That's clearly hinted at, isn't it, in verse 47. When he gives him this commission to be witnesses to the ends of the earth, you'll see it more pointedly when you get to the book of Acts, chapter 1, how it's seeing the ascended Christ rise on high, waiting for the Spirit to come, that then now the gospel is going to break forth, burst forth, explode out to all nations. Why? Because he's ascended and poured out gifts upon his people. So the very fact that we are here on the Lord's Day in 2019 in McKinney, Texas, of all places, is proof there was joy in Christ's ascension. Because the apostles took that message to the nations and Christ's church continues to take that message to the nations. There's joy for our witness. And don't you know it's true, students, think about this especially. We speak about what we love. We tell about what we find joy in. When someone gets engaged and gets married, an invitation generally goes out. When someone gets pregnant and then has the baby, an announcement typically goes out. When a new job is offered and received, the praise goes forth. When God's provision comes in surprising supernatural ways, thanksgiving goes forth. Even just yesterday, last night, my kids, a few of us, we had taken the older four, I had taken the older four to a friend's house, and we spent a fair amount of that time playing kickball. And so the older three in particular were playing kickball. And so the minute they ran into the house last night, burst across the doorstep, Mom! Then all the story of the kickball glory that had ensued a few hours before. Joy led to a witness of what had happened. Do you ever consider that maybe our struggles in evangelism of preaching Jesus Christ is actually at its root? Nothing more than a symptom that we don't have much joy in Jesus, that we're struggling for delight in the King, what are you going to do as you come to the gospel, preaching a message that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again in the same way that he left. There's joy for our witness, but there's also joy in our worship. Joy in our worship. Look at verse 52 through 53. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So again, if you know your story of Luke well, it's a perfect bookend to what we saw when we started. Because the book opens with worship in the temple. The book closes with worship in the temple. But this time, it's not worship merely of Yahweh the living God. It's worship of Yahweh the living God through Jesus Christ by the Spirit. 
Because what we need to see, as Luke has been at pains to show us over and over, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, is Christ is utterly central in our witness, in our worship. Because look back at verse 47. Jesus said, Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in my name. We don't proclaim forgiveness apart from Jesus Christ. A salvation divorced from Jesus. A righteousness removed from Jesus Christ. It's all in Him. Nor do we just worship God. Verse 42 says, um, 52 says what? They worshipped Him with great joy. He is the center. He is the source of all of our witness and our worship. The beginning, middle, and end of the Christian life is witnessing to and worshiping the risen, ascended King whose name is Jesus Christ. So it's why the old hymn has it right when it says, This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. I remember going to a pastor's conference about five or six years ago, and there was many of us there at this conference. It was an incredible time of singing and, and fellowship and preaching. And I remember after the last session came to its conclusion, just sitting in my seat and thinking, well, it's over. All the final appeals had been made. All the concluding comments had been offered. All the last exhortations were now just but whispers on the wind. And I thought, well, yeah, it's over. But I don't want to ever forget this. Have you thought over the last 18 months that for some of you, it very well may be for many of you, you'll never hear a sermon series from start to finish in Luke's gospel ever again. I actually think the likelihood is I'll never preach through it ever again. There's 65 more books and only so many years to get through them. He's made his possibly final appeal to you today. You've heard the last comment from Luke, the concluding exhortation from this gospel author. It's over. But in another way, it's not done. Because yes, we may be moving on from Luke, but we're not moving on from the Christ who is the center, focal point of Luke's gospel. So by the end, the question is, the same one that we started with, do you have certainty concerning these things about the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you have a joy in Him? Because Luke's aim, of course, is that God's people not just would come to Jesus, but that we would feast forever on the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Savior of sinners who was crucified, who has risen who has ascended to the Father's right hand and promises to come back for us at the end of all things. He is our source of joy. Let's pray together. Father, we are indeed grateful for your mercy and your faithfulness towards us as a congregation here at Redeemer for preserving us and strengthening us through many months to sit and stare at the Savior's glory and beauty from Luke's gospel. Lord, we pray for confidence. We pray for certainty. We pray for assurance that we might know the Jesus in these pages. That we might know the Jesus in all the pages of Scripture as He's in every line, 
as he's along every paragraph, as he's found in every chapter. So give us, we pray, joy in him. Give us gladness in our Savior. Give us hope as we await his return. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.